Thank you so much. I really appreciate being here. Um, so you guys are my proverbial guinea pigs. This is the first time I'm giving this lecture, so um, I hope you really enjoy it. Um, there are a few puns, so I will force you to laugh. Um, standard disclaimer slide. Um, my disclosures, I sit on the scientific advisory board for Avacene Pharma, uh, which is unrelated to this um, presentation today, and have funding from the NIDDK. So just our mission, vision, and values to remind us of what's important here at Connecticut Children's. So, um, congenital nephrogenic diabetes insipidus uh, is really what I'm here to talk to you about today. Uh, many of you know that some of the key functions of the kidney is to produce urine and regulate electrolytes. Urine production is a complicated process involving concentrating mechanisms uh, as well as dilutional processes. For the purposes of this talk, we'll delve into that later, aka uh, the rest your eyes portion of any grand rounds worth its weight in physiology. But suffice it to say, this process is fluid. My first pun for you all. Good job. Uh, and, and intricate. He's my plant. Uh, in NDI, children are typically affected in an X-linked genetic pattern, and the disease is heralded by the inability to concentrate your urine, thus resulting in large volumes of urine with significantly upregulated thirst mechanisms. Due to this large dilute urine, uh, children present very ill early in life uh, with vomiting, failure to thrive, and historically mental retardation. Um, so the prevalence of NDI is really difficult. This is known as a rare disease. And so um, there's just some reports we have out of Quebec, 8.8 uh, .8 in a million males. There are some founder effects in certain populations uh, across the world. In Netherlands, there are about 50 affected families um, in a population of 16 million. In the United States itself, the X-linked form is estimated to affect uh, four males every, uh, out of every one million. Uh, and just to give you um, a feel for that, here at Connecticut Children's, we have about 10 patients. So we really are um, a, uh, uh, have some good experience with this disease. And obviously, review of the literature cannot determine um, the exact prevalence. So um, that is my child. This loss of concentrating ability is present at birth, but infants typically do not present until two to four months of life. Breastfed infants typically present later as they receive a lower osmotic load than what we present to children in standard over-the-counter infant formula. The ability of the kidney to dilute urine lies in the water permeability in that distal nephron segment um, to arginine vasopressin, also known as antidiuretic hormone. I'll review this uh, in more detail shortly, but honestly, I know they always talk about what is the one slide to understand in a whole talk, and really the key concept is that NDI is a loss of the ability to reabsorb water into your urine before ultimately urine leaves the tubule. So again, uh, uh, um, arginine vasopressin, it's also known as antidiuretic hormone, also known as vasopressin. I don't know why we give it so many names. This is already complicated enough. Um, so here's kind of a cartoon schemata. Um, the body adjusts to increase water take by increasing 
your urine output. And conversely, decreased water intake or increasing exercise to decreasing urine output. So to do this, the body's nervous system has to communicate with the endocrine system. I have the endocrinologist sitting there, so I'm not going into this in depth. Uh, but ultimately, water balance is regulated by antidiuretic hormone, ADH. Um, and it regulates osmotic pressure of body fluids by causing the kidneys to increase water reabsorption. Um, and you can see that here, um, that the permeability of the distal tubule, I'll get into more, is controlled by ADH. So ADH uh, is produced in the hypothalamus and stored um, and released by the pituitary gland. ADH secretion is controlled by a couple of things, hypovolemia, hypotension, hyperosmolality, sympathetic stimulation, angiotensin II release. And this ultimately uh, results in increased permeability to the collecting duct, more water is reabsorbed, your blood pressure goes up, your blood volume goes up, and ultimately causes your urine to become more concentrated. I really love this picture because I love that it shows the kidney just being turned off with decrease uh, in urine. And I think that visual picture is helpful to understand exactly what ADH does. So no NDI lecture would be complete without a more in-depth schemata of the concentrating ability of the nephron. I promise this will be painless. Um, really just bear with me for orientation. I, I, I just want to use this pointer here. So um, if you look at the beginning of the tubule, um, and some of you will just have to trust me on this, uh, you begin with a very dilute urine because your urine comes in contact with your blood and it's about isoosmotic. And so as it traverses down the tubule into the deeper um, medullary segments, it becomes more and more concentrated. Um, and ultimately, as the urine passes through and goes to the distal segment, it can be diluted as low as 200 milliosmoles, which is actually more um, dilute than your sera, or it can be concentrated as high as 1,200 milliosmoles, which is the highest um, a human can concentrate urine to. So essentially, this little collecting duct, or the end of the nephron segment here, can override anything that happened throughout the whole process um, in the tubule. So stick with me, okay? I have one more physiology-based um, cartoon, and then I promise to make the rest of this more clinical. Um, this is honestly one of my favorite cartoons. I know that makes me a really nerdy nephrologist, but I think it's a beautiful representation of what we're talking about. Um, you can see the enlarged collecting duct cell here. Um, and what you can see is that in purple here is an aquaporin 2 channel, which is where water can permeate um, the cell uh, and uh, pass through into um, the urine produced. Um, as well, over here, this AVP, right, that's ADH, can bind the V2 receptor, allowing more aquaporin cell, uh, channels to be inserted. So this really is just um, an eloquent simplification of the movement of water through that cell uh, and why, uh, as you'll see more uh, in the rest of my lecture, the genetic uh, mutations cause such issues in these children.
So I feel like I've done my physiologic duty to you guys, and I want to just explain my love of the renal tubule and where my research has taken me, um, and hopefully introduce you to where my research is going and really interest you in this topic. Um, tubulopathies, as we nephrologists call them, um, are very rare diseases that typically result from genetic abnormalities in renal segments. Um, if you feel like you've never heard of tubulopathies, it's because these diseases are the last ones you study before you take your test so that they easily fall out of your brain, uh, making room for much more important information like um, Italian's true sizing or, you know, the ratio of sugar to cream for the best whipped cream. Um, so they really comprise these rare diseases known as Gittleman's, Barter's, Nephrogenic DI, Distal RTA. Um, and there are no um, true treatment algorithms that nephrologists follow. Um, there's lack of long-term morbidity information. Um, even to say we don't even know the true prevalence. I mean, how many lectures are given to you where we start with prevalence and we go through? And so that really shows um, how important the work to be done here is. Um, so I embarked upon studying NDI in a multi-center fashion, given the uh, rarity of these children. And I'm going to present what is currently known and what my um, lofty worldwide domination goals are at this time. I'm kind of kidding, but not. Um, so what have we really been concentrating on? Well, what's known about NDI, right? So much research has been done looking at these children and their poor growth. Back in the 50s, there was a really famous study of 30 males. Um, and this was a huge study at the time. Um, and what they looked at was some growth. They found that most children grew below the 50th percentile and were at um, one standard deviation below. Um, they did see some catch-up growth, but that really only occurred after you had normalization of water and electrolyte balance um, and adherence to treatment. And anybody who has treated these kids uh, will know that it's nothing short uh, of a miracle to follow what we ask of them. Um, Bone age was not delayed, which is something um, very positive that they found, and they really saw normalization in school-age children. Um, and much of the literature focused on untreated children with hypernatremic um, seizures having mental deficits. And most recently, in 2015, they've been finding intracranial calcifications, which they um, eloquently report have unknown significance. So um, this is a really um, famous historical picture from the 60s of a dehydrated and malnourished child, uh, an infant who um, uh, presented with nephrogenic diabetes insipidus. And so you look at uh, figure A. And so the child was rehydrated and had improved nutrition, and you can see him looking better in B. Ultimately, this infant died a few years later due to the repetitive episodes of dehydration. And this was far um, before the identification of the AVPR2 gene. Um, I think just for comparison, for you guys to see an overall normal hydration status of an infant is helpful, although I'm sure you stare at them frequently. Um, again, going into the literature focuses on the immediate polyuric state and some of the urologic implications. Megacystis, your bladder is overdistended because you make so much urine. Hydronephrosis, um, and how important bladder emptying is for the prevention of damage. Um, but I don't 
think that's really earth-shattering information. Um, we also know that a lot of these children have nocturnal enuresis um, up until at least the age of 11, and that issue for quality of life for children, their family, their self-esteem is very difficult in and of itself. Um, currently, the literature, their case reports, they're mostly descriptive, they're really sparse outcomes, and not many treatment designs. Um, most recently, this past April, um, uh, out of the UK at Greater Ormond Street, there was this wonderful paper published by Sharma et al., which is the largest cohort of patients with 36 patients, oops, sorry, trigger happy, um, 36 patients um, over a 40-year period and um, some of their outcomes data. And again, everything they published, I just spoke to you about in the last few slides. And so honestly, uh, me and my research associates felt like it was time to take a different approach. So this is um, the Midwest Pediatric Nephrology Consortium and its member sites. Uh, it is a clinical multi-center research consortium um, in the United States and Canada with about 78 participating centers. Um, it's really a hotbed for these trials where children are in small numbers at every center um, and especially helping us to gain clinical information on rare renal diseases. Uh, Connecticut Children's has been an active member since 2012 with many of our um, division members having research studies ongoing right now. So in trying to standardize treatment and push our, uh, our knowledge further, I began with a survey of the existing centers and their practice patterns for diagnosing, treating, and long-term management of children with NDI. We published this descriptive data in 2017, and then we really used this as a springboard for a retrospective cohort study to start to chip away at our overall understanding. Um, we just completed this multi-center retrospective case series study. Um, it was over a 20-year time frame, January 1995 to December 2015, um, looking at children age 21 and under and using a REDCAPS database collection um, for the clinical information. To date, um, I'm very proud to say we actually have the largest cohort of about 63 children in this database. As I mentioned, that article published in April had 36 and it was by far the largest. Um, and these PR patients come from over 15 centers. Um, a lot of the data that I'm going to present to you now is unpublished, so I would expect Girl Scout or Boy Scout honor that you will not go and scoop me on it. So what does our cohort look like? So obviously it's 84% male, as we talked about the X-Link fashion, 27% Hispanic, with the preponderance being white, 16% black, 9% Asian. Again, this really represents the North American cohort we have and underscores the importance of getting other ethnicities and groups across the um, globe involved. So talking really about the genetic patterns, um, NDI is the most, uh, is most commonly inherited in an X-linked manner in about 90%. So these are typically males affected. The majority is um, a genetic issue with the V2 receptor, AVPR2, um, and that's where vasopressin EDH, uh, AVP binds. To date, there have been identified more than 250 putative disease-causing mutations out of a genetic lab in Barcelona. 
NDI can also be inherited in an autosomal recessive manner about 9% of the time and then dominant 1% of the time. And these are really problems, uh, genetic issues in that aquaporin 2 gene. Um, the autosomal dominant, recessive, and acquired forms of NDI, which I'm really not going to go into in this lecture, affect males and females in equal numbers. So we here at Connecticut Children's do have a couple of female patients as well. Prenatal testing is possible for at-risk pregnancies if the disease-causing pathogenic variant in the family has been identified. I think identifying the molecular defect um, in, in NDI allows early diagnosis and treatment for these infants to avoid multiple episodes of dehydration and long-term mental effects. This also allows us as nephrologists to start treatment with diuretics, low-sodium intake, and abundant water repletion. So in our cohort, looking at the genetics, 56% of the patients had genetic testing, which I thought was really disappointing, given the preponderance of access that we have to genetic testing and how it can really identify the abnormality in these children. And again, 70% were um, mutations in the AVPR2, which is the X-linked. Um, and 20% of the patients had um, a known familial mutation. Um, some more cohort data for you to see. The mean age of diagnosis, which was about 122 um, days, so about four months of age, these children are being found. Um, and G-tubes were placed for nutrition at about nine months of age. So that really shows that for five months after diagnosis, what's really happening with these children nutritionally that we're waiting so long to per, uh, put in these G-tubes for growth. So let's delve into the clinical diagnosis a little bit more. Typically, this depends on demonstration of a very dilute urine in the presence of AVP. Um, so a test of urine concentrating ability is also known as a water deprivation test. And really, um, it's a dangerous test for young children. Uh, in our unit, the child fasts overnight after they go to bed and presents in the morning with their urine and their serum um, studies collected. Um, if the first morning urine is greater than 750, you don't have to perform the test because obviously the patient can concentrate their urine. Um, the test is then um, done with the child refraining from drinking really anything and urine and serum studies collected almost hourly. Um, the test is stopped immediately if a child exceeds a weight loss of 5%, which we have definitely seen, signs of dehydration, sunken eyes, serum sodium greater than 155, or plasma osms greater than 300. Obviously, this can be dangerous for children, and so we really um, think genetic testing is better. A better test that we use is a DDAVP loading test. So basically, AVP is administered parenterally to these children. Um, intranasally um, in children older than one year of age, and then you check their urine after about two hours. If they can concentrate their urine, then you've ruled out nephrogenic DI. If the urine is very dilute, this is a nice way of diagnosing kind of clinically without water depriving. So what did our cohort do? Well, 68% had documented elevated serum osms greater than 300. Again, this is a retrospective chart review, so that's why this isn't the best mechanism to study these patients. 16% um, had a water deprivation test. 48% had a DDAVP loading test. Age about 104 
state. So that really shows how people are diagnosing these infants. And interestingly enough, 37% were evaluated with an MRI because central diabetes insipidus is typically confused um, and on the differential. What about the nutritional management of our cohort? So 73% of these patients had a renal pediatric dietitian. Um, which is a little surprising to me that a quarter, almost a quarter of the kids had no access to a renal dietitian and how difficult uh, it is to manage this. 70% um, were prescribed a special formula. Only 59% of people are giving these children a low-salt diet, which to me was very fascinating. Um, and then 37% with the G-tube uh, and nutrient supplement. So what, what's the evidence for treatment? Like, why am I droning on and on about this um, rare disease? Well, historically, polyuria and the polydipsia, the thirst, can be reduced by about 50% using thiazide diuretics. The mechanism here uses a natiuresis, which is a salt diuresis, causing loss in your urine of more salt than actual water. And so you can see how that's not really a fix, but a slight alteration. Um, this medication is typically used in high to standard to high doses and can cause a lot of potassium wasting. Typically, it's used in combination with a potassium sparing um, diuretic um, to help these children. Um, dietary salt restriction is kind of the cornerstone of this um, treatment, and babies are typically restricted to about. 300 milligrams per day to maximize the use of the thiazide, um, and we do not restrict any protein. Um, NSAIDs or prostaglandin synthesis inhibitors are really used because there are some intracellular pathways that um, prostaglandins control, causing water permeability at that distal segment. Um, and so they really improve urine concentrating ability and reduce urine output. They're typically used with the thiazides, but they really have a lot of undesirable side effects, such as gastric um, damage and renal tubular damage. So in our cohort, it was kind of, um, you know, close. Uh, everybody was very close to what uh, each other was doing, but still there was no clear pattern. So in the darker blue is ever used, and in the lighter blue is at their last clinic visit. So upwards of 90, 80% of our cohort was using a thiazide, 60 to 70% using the potassium sparing diuretic, and only 50% using indomethacin, which is really the main medication that decreases polyuria. Again, these parents are changing 11 to 12 diapers overnight, so it's just surprising to me that we're not using um, this medication more. Looking at the start day and um, start age and date and days, you can see that the thiazide was used around the time of diagnosis. The, the potassium sparing diuretic a little bit later, but indomethacin was started at about one and a half to two years of age, and I think that's when people, right, being a parent myself, get so sick and tired of diapers that you want to start potty training your child. So what can we really do about treatment? Um, so um, if you just bear with me on this cartoon, I think it's a nice schemata. Um, the known causes of nephrogenic DI are shown here. So 
the congenital X-link that I discussed um, with the mutated receptor. Um, lithium and other drugs can cause an acquired NDI, which I won't really talk about. And then the other forms where this aquaporin-2 um, channel is mutated. Um, and so these three mechanisms all interfere with a key step in vasopressin-stimulated water reabsorption. And again, you guys don't all have to be experts in thiazides or salt handling, but you can see how none of the treatments I discussed have any shout-outs here on this slide, right? So we're giving treatments that actually have nothing to do with the genetic abnormality. And I bet if I pulled everybody in here from nursing to social work to every specialty, most of the treatments you guys are giving in your day-to-day -day really get at the mechanism um, that, that's the issue. So what, what are some potential non-vasopressin treatments that exist? So this, again, is a closer up of that cell showing alternative stimulation of water reabsorption pathways. So let me walk you through it. This ONO here stimulates the prostaglandin um, receptor, as I said. It goes through this pathway and ultimately increases aquaporin-2 transporters, um, again, overriding one of the genetic mutations. If you look over here at... Um, Clopidogrel, it, inhib it inhibits this receptor here and again results in an increase of this pathway, allowing um, aquaporin 2 um, to be inserted here in the channel, water traversing through or backwards to concentrate your urine more. Down here in blue, you see a couple of names that you know. Erlotinib, simvastatin, and sildenafil. And these work through a different pathway of cyclic GMP, which I, I won't bore you with. But again, suffice it to say, aquaporin-2 gets inserted, and you override um, the, the genetic mutations that we've been stock, talking about. Um, a lot of the key study, a lot of the initial studies and a key med that has been looked at has to do with the cyclic GMP pathway, uh, the phosphodiesterase inhibitor of sildenafil. Um, sildenafil typically is used to treat pulmonary hypertension and erectile dysfunction. Um, and increased, it, uh, what we see here is that it increases that aquaporin-2 receptor at the apical surface. Um, but it does more than that because there are in vitro, so in cell and then in vivo studies that show a proof of concept. So in Brattleboro rats, which are a model of central diabetes insipidus, they give this medication and they show an increase of these cells, uh, of these receptors in the rat cell. Recently, there was an exciting case report with a child with X-linked nephrogenic DI who was treated with sildenafil clinically. The child uh, was shown to have decreased urine output increase urine osms compared with the, tr the prior treatment that I discussed with you with the um, combination of hydrochlorothiazide, sorry, amylaride, and indomethacin. Um, the other two uh, medications, simvastatin, um, first has been shown to increase urine concentration in vasopressin-deficient rats, and the purpose, um, this an alternative mechanism to regulating that aquaporin-2 trafficking by bypassing um, the receptor on this side and causing um, the desired result. 
Um, one last medication to name that we all have heard of here in orange or brown for you is metformin. Um, and uh, it has some excellent safety profiles leading to increased aquaporin. So when you look at metformin, metformin sildenafil, and simvastatin, you start to think that these are commercially available drugs that have excellent safety records and really um, their potential for rapidly advancing them into clinical trials is quite high. So right now, looking at the current cohort, statistically, we are pulling some data on hospitalizations, um, what we really saw for growth failure, how many episodes of hypernatremic dehydration they had, um, episodes of renal failure, that's not been looked at, which again for me is shocking, looking at their estimated GFR, looking at the evidence of chronic kidney disease, because this is meaningful data to glean from these patients. What really are the urologic complications, the polyuria, the hydronephrosis, and what are the highest risk periods in terms of age? What if we could diagnose these babies earlier and prevent um, hospitalizations or hypernatremic episodes? So um, this is really fresh data to share with you guys. 24% um, of our cohort had chronic kidney disease diagnosed. Uh, and this has never been published. Uh, nobody has talked about this. 58% had stage one. 33% had stage two. Um, and even 8% of that population um, that I mentioned had stage five, which is essentially ESRD uh, and the need for uh, renal replacement therapy. The median age at time to CKD diagnosis was about 4.75 years of age. Um, and so these are young children. This isn't when you're 30 or when you're 50, you'll have a problem. So from a population-based um, you know, health perspective, this is important. Um, one patient in the population required dialysis. 18% uh, of the cohort had abnormal renal uh, sonograms with hydronephrosis and pelvic haliectasis as the noted abnormality, and, and that really follows what the literature has said. Um, at last follow-up, 72% of that entire cohort had enuresis. Um, and the median clinic follow-up that we had in our group was pretty good at about five years, and it spanned from two uh, to about 10 years. So. This is a great cartoon from Shireen and I's previous mentor, and I feel like it uh, represents how I feel about research and the care of children with nephrogenic DI. We know there's such a need. We know that their quality of life is very difficult, and yet we continue to give them treatments that aren't really based at the underlying um, pathophysiology. Um, so I really felt like given the success with our robust cohort, um, me and my research associate wanted to work on kind of a different research pattern, uh, research project that nobody has really, really looked at um, to kind of form an international collaboration and to create a prospective cohort um, to increase our size and capacity. So um, we're beginning the very first collaboration between the Midwest Pediatric Nephrology Consortium and ESPN. Um, I'm sorry, it's not that ESPN. There's no Tom Brady. Um, I don't really know anybody else on ESPN, so sorry. Uh, it is the European Society for Pediatric Nephrology, and this uh, is going to be the first ever international nephrogenic DI patient registry with a plan for genotyping and therapeutic clinical drug trials. Um, 
So currently, we have legal commitments from six other countries to enroll all of their patients with NDI. So we have the Midwest. We have more member centers who are signing on. We have Spain, um, Ireland, Australia, Israel, Nigeria, and Colombia. Um, we also now will have access to genotyping via the University Hospital in Barcelona, which is that specific ge uh, genetic lab that had already identified 250 putative mutations um, in children with NDI. Um, and currently we have evaluation of those current medications for an IND, an investigational new drug application underway with the FDA. Um, so this is kind of a look at who all is involved. Hema Aracetta, um is that phenomenal geneticist out of Spain. Um, she and her group will be genotyping every patient that we enroll from all of uh of our member countries. Um, because again, if you look at our cohort, only 56% uh, were even genotyped. Um, here at Connecticut Children's, we're the clinical hub with, as I mentioned, already 61 cases. This retrospective case series um, will be going out for publication. We'll be signing on more patients. And then um, out of Budapest in Hungary, Dr. George Reus, who has some experience um, with investigational new drug trials, um, will be helping us. So this is kind of the overall um, structure that we have moving forward to kind of get better information and potentially um, have appropriate drug treatments. So I want to thank you guys for um, your uh, attentiveness and not falling asleep. Um, I really want to thank everybody who's been involved in this um, process. Um, most of all, my research associate, Melinda Carpenter, who has been nothing short of uh, amazing and traveling all over with me, Marianne Banavakis, um, Shereen Mason, who has contributed significantly, Kathy Herbst. These are all of the member um, Midwest Pediatric Nephrology Consortium sites that have contributed patients, nationwide children's in planning, um, and then obviously Dr. Reuse and Dr. Araceta. This is just part of the nephrology team um, who is great and helps these children um, have a better quality of life.